Hebrews, the fifth chapter. I want to talk to you about discerning the difference. Discerning the difference. You know, in Proverbs, over and over again, it talks about that you should desire to have wisdom and discernment, and in the Living Bible, that's called discernment and common sense. Proverbs 3.21, My son, let not them depart of a first 19. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. The Living Bible says, Keep sound wisdom and common sense. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, talks about discernment. Hebrews 5, verse 13 and 14. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. He gives different signs of immaturity here, and one of them is that I'm being unskillful in the word of righteousness. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now I want you to see something in that verse. It says that we begin to develop the ability to digest spiritual meat by using reason, reasoning things out, sitting down and thinking on, meditating on the Word. What does this mean? Why does it say it that way, Lord? What's another verse? How can I find more information in the Scripture on this? Begin to meditate on certain things that God shows you in the Scripture and think them through. He says, as you begin to use your reasoning, God begins to give you the ability to discern good and evil. There are some people that go to church nowadays that are as dumb as a stump when it comes to being able to recognize the difference between good and evil. They can, just, all they can tell is the difference between a, a, an evil and something that's worse. And they'll say, well, that which isn't quite as evil is, is good in comparison to that which is bad. No, evil is never good. And there's, as far as degrees of evil are concerned, evil is evil. It's going to wax worse and worse in the last days, but as long as it's sin, it's sin. But God's Word says that when we learn how to meditate on the Word and use reasoning from the Word, not reasoning of the natural mind, but discerning spiritual things, the more we do that, we're going to be able to discern good from evil, right from wrong. In fact, the Word of God says it's an abomination if you and I call good evil or evil good. There are some people today that are calling a lot of evil good. We've got to go back and say, uh, Bill Gothard had, a, had a, a graph sometime where he said, now here is where man was and here's where God's standard was and God's trying to bring us up to his standard. And so what happens is something happens right in between here and we move up, excuse me, something moves down here and, and we say, well, that's clear down here, but well, this right here just under where we were isn't as bad as that down here. So we should, you know, go get along better with this instead of this way down here. And he says, and all the time we're moving further and further away from God's standard and then we'll come up a little bit from it and say, well, maybe we shouldn't be clear down there, but we can be up here. And here's where God wants us, way up here. But you have to know what you're going to set as your standard and say, now, this is why we've set this standard, and this is why we will or won't do this thing. This comes with discerning evil, good from evil, and evil from good. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning of verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 
But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. In other words, the gifts that the Holy Spirit has for us. God by His Spirit gives us the knowledge of these things. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now let me tell you, when you start discerning spiritual things, right from wrong, spiritual things from non-spiritual things, the world is going to call you foolish. And when they do, say that's a confirmation of that what I am doing is of God. Because the natural man comprehends not the things of God for their foolishness unto him. So when they say, boy, that's a foolish thing to say, you're acting foolish. Now you ought to say, thank you, I appreciate that. That tells me I'm doing what God's Word says I should do because He says the unbeliever does not comprehend this and it's foolishness to it. But he that is spiritual judges all things, examines, investigates, and decides is what the Greek actually says there. He examines, investigates, and decides all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now that mind of Christ must be through use, refined, to where we learn to have discernment of right and wrong. And by the way, you only have one foundation and basis to establish right and wrong. And that's the Word of God, which is settled forever in the heavens. You don't go by what, well, everybody's doing it, or they seem like nice people and they're saying that and doing that. We go by what the Word of God says. And when the Word of God says this is sin, and we look at this over here, we don't say, well, you know, it isn't as bad as it's still sin. You say, that's not progressive theology. No, that's biblical theology that doesn't change. You know, I don't have to preach a new doctrine next month or next year. Talking about learning to discern good from evil, right from wrong. And let me tell you something. The Bible says that the human mind can excuse itself for anything it really wants to do if it uses its own reasoning for its judgment. You remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked Him, by what authority do you do these things? He said, I'll answer that if you'll answer one for me. John the Baptist, was his ministry from heaven or from man? And it says, and they reasoned among themselves. That's where they got in trouble. They reasoned among themselves. And this was the reasoning. Now, if we say it was of heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe in him? If we say it's of earth, these people will stone us because they believe that John's ministry was from heaven. See, that, that's human reasoning. So what did they say? Well, we really can't say on that. Uh, we'd rather not give an opinion on that right now. That's the end result of human reasoning. We see the halls filled with it in Congress. Indecision. If we say this, this group won't vote for us. If we say that, this vote, group won't vote for us. You know, it's almost impossible to find convictions in public office anymore. Because you can't stay in public office if you have convictions. You're going to get somebody mad at you all the time. It's very difficult. But you know, as a Christian, you have to have convictions. And you have only one basis and one source of that conviction. We have the mind of Christ. And as we read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit 
and we meditate on this, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us through the use of our reasoning to discern evil from rightness, from, from, from good. All right? First of all, we need to discern the difference between knowing about Christ and trusting Christ. How many of you know there's a difference between knowing about a good medicine and taking good medicine? You can know about the finest medicine in the world that's going to cure you. And you can go around telling everybody, if you'll just take this, it'll cure you. And if you have that disease, if you don't take it, knowing about it isn't going to do you a bit of good. Well, you can know all you want to about Jesus Christ, but until you take Christ in and make Him Lord of your life, there's, it's not going to do you one bit of good even if you go to church, get baptized, join the church, tithe, teach a Sunday school class, become an officer of the church. You can know all you want to about it because Satan himself not only knows about Christ, but he trembles in fear when he realizes who Christ is and he knows who he is. But Satan is not going to heaven. 1 John, the second chapter, verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know Him if, there's that conjunction again, conditional conjunction, if we keep His commandments. He that saith I know Him and keepeth not His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Now John is a legalist. Do you see that? See what a legalist he was there? Well, he's saying that a man saved by works. No, he's not. He's just simply saying a man can say he's a Christian, but if his life doesn't measure up, the man's a liar. Face it. Paul the Apostle said one of the great problems he had in the persecutions in his life was false brethren. Satan is an angel of light and there are going to be many who will come forth saying that they're Christians and they're saints and they're doing all these good things, but they've never been redeemed. And Jesus said in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this or that, the other thing? Are you saying we're saved by works? No, I'm saying they were never saved. They can dance and jump and speak in tongues and, and cast out demons and, and uh, give in prophecies and, and in tongues and interpretation of tongues and still not be a Christian. Is what I'm trying to show you. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Is that salvation by works? No. It's the end result. If there's a genuine experience, there's a genuine result. You see what I'm saying? A man can say, well... I don't know how to, I don't know how else to say it. If there's a genuine experience, there's got to be a genuine result. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he not ought to be, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you show me someone who says they're a Christian, who's still living in adultery or still living in fornication, still living in, with someone that's not their husband or their wife or whatever, you show me someone and they say, I'm a Christian and they're still living that way, you go to the, the Bible. The Bible says, don't be deceived about this. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves and mankind, those that live that lifestyle will never inherit the kingdom of God unless they repent. I didn't say it. Paul the Apostle said that. But what if they go to church and join the church and teach a Sunday school class? They'll go to hell having been a Sunday school teacher. What if they're a pastor? They'll go to hell having been a pastor because their lifestyle is evidence that they have not been redeemed by the blood because they haven't been made into a new creation. What's happened? You see, we've got Christian pencils and balloons nowadays. And listen to some people, you think they're going to heaven because they're a Christian pencil. I just saw the other day, what was it? Uh, oh, I saw a sign. I wanted to try to remember it. Something, oh, Christian babysitting. 
I thought there's no such thing as Christian babysitting. There may be someone who professes to be a Christian that's going to babysit, but that does not make it Christian babysitting. But we're so used to using Christian as a title to either tell you something you can use in Sunday school or can't use in Sunday school that we've just misused that name completely. You see, I may be a pastor. I'm not a Christian pastor. I'm a pastor who is a Christian who teaches what the Word of God says. But that doesn't make me a Christian pastor. I'm a pastor who is a Christian. Now, there are a lot of people who are Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians who will never see heaven's doors. Jesus said, few there be that find it. But he said, many in that day. I'll say, depart from me, you that work lawlessness, I never knew you. Get the, get the comparison here? Few are going to find it. Many are going to be on the broad path. Many are going to think they're on the, broad, on the narrow path, but when that day comes, they're going to be shocked. And Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. He said, don't jerk them out right now, but when the harvest comes, I'll see to it that the tares are burned and the wheat. Does that tell you that in the same field, there are going to be two types of plants? In the same field, they're going to look alike, smell alike, have all the indications until the harvest comes in when the head comes out on the wheat and it shows the difference between that and the tear. That's what we're trying to show you here. There are a lot of people in churches today who are not Christians. And there's a difference between knowing about Christ and trusting Christ as your Lord. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. But the scripture says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus Christ as Adonai, supreme master, Lord, ruler of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he's alive, you'll be saved. Well, let me tell you something. Once you declare that Jesus is Adonai, Master, Lord, he takes supremacy, he takes priority in every area of your life, everybody's going to look at you and say, boy, that person's a brand new creature. Look, their whole life has changed. Since they are now are in Christ, they're seeking those things which are above. For Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. They're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these things will be added unto them. Why? Because they're a chosen generation. They're a new person in Christ. What we've done, we've got a lot of people who have had Christian experiences, but not regeneration. They've had a religious experience, but not regeneration. And that's the second thing here, reformation against regeneration. A lot of difference. You know you can wash a pig, and that doesn't make him a new creature. You can wash him and put a ribbon around his, uh, around his neck and put perfume all over him, but he's still a pig. You turn him loose and he'll go right back to the, to the muck, right down in the barnyard, just root in it again with that nice root. Jerk him out of there, wash him all off again, put perfume all over him, and he's still a pig. Right back in. There are a lot of people who get whitewashed and never washed white from the inside out. Regeneration. Many churches are growing today at a very rapid pace, but my concern is that many of these people have had religious experiences not born again experience. Dave Wilkerson recently came out with a letter that he said, I'm absolutely alarmed in the charismatic Pentecostal churches today. We're filling them with people who have never had an experience of genuine regeneration. But the churches are growing. They're exploding. Mega church is the answer. And then financial disaster. And you notice what happens when a church goes under? They go off in every different direction and let it just sink quietly into the sunset. And to join the next exciting thing is happening. And the next exciting thing is happening. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. When people come committed to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the surroundings are not that important. The most important thing is that we get the word of God, that we fellowship, that we walk in obedience to God's word, and then we have an impact on those around us. I believe the world is filled with people who are hungry to know the truth of God's word and to have a genuine born-again experience. But I'm going to tell you something. 
There's not going to be a, a movement of the Holy Spirit unless we abide in the truth of God's Word and become a separated people. You cannot function and intermingle with the things and the ways of the world and expect God's blessing on it. You'll have a lot of excitement. You'll have people, as I told you, in one of the most, most exciting, fastest-growing churches in the United States just a few years ago. I don't like to harp on these things, but I'm trying to show you the difference between regeneration and reformation. People singing praises to God and during the service raising their hands, speaking in tongues, dancing before the Lord, walk off the choir platform, four or five of them get together and go down here to Club One and sit and drink liquor and watch naked women walk around. How many of you know there is something wrong there? John says, he that says he loves me and keeps not my commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. Well, you go to them and say, well, that's just your opinion. That's the most amazing thing in the world to me. It's not my opinion. It's exactly what it says here. You don't even have to interpret that. He that says he loves me and keeps not my commandment, liar. I didn't say it. John said it. Don't look at me. Here, no. Don't look at me. He said it. And this is never going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. You're a liar, John says. And the truth is not in you. Well, I believe in Jesus. So does the devil. At least the devil's consistent. What's your problem? That's what God's Word says. In the Old Testament, they would come and with the same mouth they would bless God and with the same mouth they would curse man. They'd bless God and curse God with the same mouth. He said, there's something wrong here. Wherefore, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. That's the difference between regeneration and reformation. Biblical standards. We have gotten so far away from biblical standards in so many areas, and we're looking around saying, I don't know why the world is such a mess. You've got to get back to the Word, and it won't be a mess. Tonight, the third thing I want to talk about, and we've talked about it before because we hear so little of it in the preaching of many churches today, and that is the difference between admitting your sin and repenting of your sin. The Word of God talks about sorrow, people who are sorry for their sins, but they're not sorry with a godly sorrow that causes them to come to a point of repentance. There are indications in the Scripture of ten different men who have said, I have sinned. Let's just look at several of them here. First of all, in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, in the 13th verse, remember when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba? Nathan the prophet came to him. No one else knew about it. He was king of Israel. No one dared intimidate him except a true prophet of God came to him and said, Thou art the man. In verse 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. David not only confessed it, but if you'll turn over sometime and read the Psalm, Psalm 52, where David repented of his sin. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, he said. Now that was genuine repentance. He turned around, quit it, went away from it, and cried out to God for forgiveness. Then also the scripture talks about Nehemiah repenting of his sin and the sin of the nation of Israel. In the book of Nehemiah, in the first chapter and the sixth verse. 
Let me start back uh, with the fourth verse. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the Lord, before the God of heaven. Nehemiah 1.5 now. And I said, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, and the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house have sinned. God heard that prayer and sent revival to the nation of Israel when they repented of their sins, turned away from their sins and forsook their sins. In Job, the 42nd chapter, remember Job had his three comforters? Precious comforters, nice things to have around. Job, the 42nd chapter, verses 5 and 6. Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And repent in dust and ashes. He said, I... Lord, I, I, I tried to say things about you that I, I just didn't have any right to say. And right after that, it's interesting how God responded. And it was so, verse 7, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz and te, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves uh, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz and the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did according to as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. Job repented of his sin. Now, I want to bring these things out. I've got uh, two more, one in Micah, Micah, the seventh chapter, the seventh chapter and the ninth verse. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. I'm going to read on down here. I shall arise when I sit in darkness. The Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. There, verse 7, he confessed. He said, I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Then if you go over to the New Testament, you have the prodigal son. Remember, he got away from the Lord, and when he finally had spent all of his money and was feeding the pigs, he said, my father has, servants have more than I have right now. And he said, I'll go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned. And when he went to his father, you know, he had that attitude of mind. His father didn't even give him a chance to say it. He just fell on his neck and hugged him and held him and welcomed him back. But in these instances in the scriptures, when they said, I have sinned, God forgave them and restored them. I could go on to tell you that there was a certain man by the name of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. What did he say each time when a judgment, when one of the uh, plagues, thank you, my words aren't coming tonight, when the plagues came upon him and he would call Moses and say, I have sinned, I've sinned, I'm sorry, uh, tell God to take this away. Moses says, okay, now you're going to let us go, huh? Yes. 
So then Moses would pray and the plague would be removed and he would repent of his repentance, of his sorrow, of saying he was sorry. And this went on and on and on until God finally judged Pharaoh. And God says, because of the hardness of his heart, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. How? Every time he said no, his heart would be hardened. And he'd say yes and then say no again. His heart would get harder and harder and harder to finally he was judged by God. Balaam, remember Balaam the prophet? He said he had sinned against God. God, uh, I mean, uh, the enemy of Israel, the king of the enemy of Israel called him and asked him to come up into the, over the uh, plains where the Israelites were camped and said put a curse on them and every time he'd get up he'd, he'd bless them. And when he finally had uh, done this several times trying to, to talk to God and see if God wouldn't work out a way for him to be able to do it because he wanted all the money that was being offered to him evidently. He said he was sorry for his sin. I have sinned, but you know later on that when that nation was destroyed by the nation of Israel, Balaam also was destroyed. I believe he was a powerful prophet until that time when he disobeyed God, but he was sorry, but not to the point of repentance. Achan, remember Achan? Another man who said, I have sinned and and Joshua said, tell me what you did. And then he described how he had taken the gold and the garments and put them under his tent. You know that in spite of the fact that he was sorry, it was too late to be sorry in that situation. He and all of his family were stoned to death. Saul, the king, he said he was sorry, but it was too late. God had removed his kingdom from him and Saul died in battle. And then, of course, Judas. You remember Judas cast the 30 pieces of silver in the back on the floor of the temple and went out and hanged himself. But he cried, he wept and said he was sorry. You see, there's a difference between genuine repentance and just plain being sorry. Sometimes, how many of you know that kids many times are sorry for being caught, not for what they did? Tremendous difference between the two. Repentance is to change one's mind for the better, to heartily amend his ways, with an abhorrence for his past sins. Let me say it again. Genuine biblical repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. It is to change one's mind for the better. In other words, be different. To heartily amend his ways with an abhorrence for the past sins. I remember some years ago going to a, a prayer breakfast and every time we'd go there, sooner or later the man in charge would start talking about all the things that he did before he, quote, became a Christian and how he had lived deep in sin and he would go into all the details of the deep sin he had been in before. And I, I just had a real churning in my spirit when I'd hear that. I thought, you know, if, if you really, really got away from that, there ought to be such a hatred of that. You'd just say, nobody needs to know what I was in, but thank God I've been delivered from it. This went on and on and on for about two years. And then one day his wife called me and said, I want you to know he's run off with another woman again. You see, he had had a religious experience, but he had never genuinely repented of his sins for he had an abhorrence for that past sin. And the scriptures talk over and over again about repentance. I want you to look in Acts. If you want to mark some good verses, if you ever want to know what the scriptures have to say about repentance, Acts, the 17th chapter, verse 30. This to me is the pivot point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The pivot point between the Old Testament and the New Testament principles. Paul says in the 30th verse, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And the Amplified Bible says it so much more clearly that I've written it in here, and I've read it time and time again because it's so important. 
Such former ages of ignorance, God, it is true, ignored and allowed to pass unnoticed. What times? Before Christ came. In the Old Testament, when they didn't have complete revelation, God ignored and let pass unnoticed many of the sins of the Old Testament. Some people say, well, they did this in the Old Testament. Yes, they did many things back there that weren't right, but because of their ignorance and lack of light, God allowed them to get through it, get by with it. It says, but now, Paul says, but now he charges all people everywhere to repent. That is, to change their minds for the better and to heartily to amend their ways with an abhorrence for their past sins. That's the translation that the, the uh, Amplified Bible gives concerning repentance. In the Old Testament, the word was shub. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return, let him shub, let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him. The scripture says, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes it. That means gets away from it, has an abhorrence for it, doesn't want anything more to do with it. He shall have mercy. In uh, Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, I hope you're marking these verses because one of these days somebody's going to ask you what the difference is between being sorry for their sin and repenting of their sin, admission of sin or repentance from sin. Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 20. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will shub, turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions with he, which he hath, that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Verse 24, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All the right, his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned, that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned in them, he shall die. Verse 26, When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done, he shall die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness, again, that's Shub, that he hath committed, and doth that which is, doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save, uh, save his soul alive, because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live and shall not die. Verse 30, the last part. Repent and Shub, turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit for why will you die? The last part of verse, uh, well, take the whole verse of 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the, uh, the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. The word in the Old Testament is shoe, turning away from sin. In the New Testament, there are two words for repentance. One is metanoia, to have another mind, to change one's mind, and the other one is epistropho, to turn away and have an abhorrence for, to forsake, to get away from the past sins. The Bible is replete. When John the Baptist came, he preached repentance. The Bible tells when Jesus went out into the wilderness, he was filled with the Holy Ghost and went out into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. When he came back out, he went out into his ministry full of the Holy Ghost and preached repentance of sins. 
what he told the disciples to go forward. In one gospel, he says, go forward and preach the kingdom of God. In another gospel, the same place, he said, go forth and preach repentance. The message of repentance is the message of the kingdom of God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, the apostle Peter, after he had preached his message, the Jewish people said to him, uh, what shall we do? And he said, repent ye and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Repent ye. There's no way around it. Paul the apostle said we preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that there's no true salvation without repentance. There's no true repentance that does not bring in salvation. When someone truly repents, they're saved. If someone is really saved, it means there came a time in their life when they repented of their sins. We need to understand in this last day and age, there's a lot of easy believism out there. But we have to get back to what the Word of God says. Except you repent, you'll perish. Over and over again, Jesus said that. Except you repent, you'll perish. Except you repent. That means that you literally hate and want to forsake all your past sins. And I want you to be able to discern the difference between the two because there'll be a lot of people say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I belong to a church. But have you really repented and trusted Jesus Christ and made Him Lord of your life? Because therefore, if any man is in Christ, here's what you look for. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything about them is brand new. They're a brand new person. The old ways have died. They're no longer the, the way they once were. The scripture says that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How many of you know you can't be in darkness and in light at the same time? You're in either one or the other. And if Christ has called us out of darkness into his glorious light, it means we leave the darkness behind us. And that's repentance. The next thing we'll just take a moment to talk about here, and that is the difference between attending church and worshiping Christ. We talked about that a few moments earlier tonight. You know there have been some people who have gone to church for years and years and years, and if they ever got into a real spirit of worship, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. It was refreshing. Last night I was able to go over and, and uh, visit a, another service. Peter Lord was speaking in Winter Park. And uh, to see the warmth and to see the opening up of worship and praise in the church. Uh, they started right at first, they were a little kind of hesitant, but there was more clapping for long. They were able to clap with their songs, and I saw people beginning to raise their hands and songs. And then they had some different ones from different churches, leaders from different churches, come and stand up after the service and ask the Lord for discernment. They, they all just prayed and asked the Lord for discernment. One got up and said, the Lord just showed me tonight that there is here those with this problem, and if you really want that pain met, if you want that need taken care of, I want you to stand right now, and we're going to minister to you. Everybody keep your eyes closed. And then they did it. Another man stood up and said, God showed me that this is it. They were getting a word of knowledge. Getting a word of knowledge and letting the gifts flow. And uh, they asked me to come up afterwards last night, and uh, a young couple came up, and the girl says, I, I, I'm just so depressed. I've been um, under psychiatric care, and I've, I, I've just... I just don't know what to do. I'm just so frustrated. She's ruining our marriage. And the Spirit of God gave me discernment immediately. And I says, the Lord has just shown me that this is in your life and this needs to be repented of. And she says, oh, I know what it is. And I thought, thank you, Lord. And she started praying. And uh, I said, now you just tell the Lord you not only forgive, but you forget and you're going to ask for the Lord to bless them right now. And she dealt with that thing. And we commanded that thing to let go of her and she began to just sob and suddenly she threw her hands up and she said, it's gone and she grabbed me around the neck and hugged me. And then the Lord allowed me to minister to them as a couple. Well, you see, 
that's got to be part of the body ministry. And I think that, you know, I, I'm really concerned sometimes that we don't, aren't doing enough of that. We've almost swung in the other direction almost too far. And I think we need to come back some and begin to ask the Lord as a body of believers to give us word of knowledge and word of wisdom and discerning of spirits when we come together so that we're not only worshiping, but people are getting something out of it. People are going to be going away feeling that God has ministered to them. Peter Lord was saying last night that he was at a funeral home uh, visiting a family that someone had passed away and they were having the, uh, I guess they call it wake. And uh, he was having a terrible time walking on one knee. He said his knee was hurting him so badly. And uh, the mortician came up and said, uh, Peter, uh, the Lord showed me you've got a problem with your knee and then I'm supposed to pray for you. He said, you know, I could have said, now wait a minute, I am the pastor of the church over here and I've got a whole team of pastors over there that if I need prayer, I'll have them pray for me. And he said, brother, he said, you go right ahead. And he said, that man laid hands on me and prayed for me. Instantly, my knee was healed. He said, I haven't even paid any attention to my knee since then. He says, because it doesn't hurt. He says, the only time we are aware of some part of our body is when it begins to hurt. Other than that, we just expect it to keep going until something breaks down. But when we're talking about worship, I wish I could somehow share with you what I feel in my heart. The struggle that I went through learning how how many of you know that pastors never have any problems or burdens on their heart when they come to church? I mean, we are just right on top of it. You know that, don't you? No one has to tell you that. Never under a load, never a burden, never things that we try to have to force out of our mind. I mean, we're just right there. You know that, don't you? How many of you know that isn't true? What I tell you, I'm telling you because I want you to know that there was a time when it was very difficult for me do anything that the Scripture says. You see, I don't do it because Baptists do it or Methodists do it or Lutherans do it. Somebody had to take me to the Word and say, forbid not to speak with tongues. Well, if the Bible says forbid not to speak with tongues, I absolutely refuse to, re to forbid to speak with tongues. If it says that if I speak with tongues, that I edify myself, I build up, charge up my own battery, and God's Word tells me, I would that you all spoke with tongues, then there's something there. He says that we should desire spirituals. Then out of obedience and the teaching of God's word, I want my battery charged. So Lord, if that's what you say, out of obedience, I will, if you will just baptize me with the Holy Spirit, I will speak with other tongues. When God's word says, lifting up holy hands to the Lord, boy, Baptist hands just don't like to go in the air. I had, you know, I, I remember one guy saying, you raise your hands like, like the people that let all the water drip off their elbows. You're supposed to hold them up high enough so that it'll run down all over you instead of dripping off at the elbow. And I thought, well, that's just a minor point. But I found out the point was that I was not willing and obedient enough to say, Lord, I do submit. You said lift up, hold the hands. I do it in obedience to your word. And I found out it's very easy to do that right now. Now, you say, well, why do I have to do it? You don't have to do it. But if God tells you to do it, and you don't do it, then it's disobedience. You miss the blessing. Well, I don't see what I can do for you. That doesn't make any difference. Well, I don't even understand what's, what I'm saying when I'm speaking in tongues. That doesn't make any difference. Let me ask you something. When God told one of the prophets to go out and get naked and lie on one side for so many days out in the public and turn over on his other side and lay there naked for so many days... That prophet didn't say, Dear God, would you please explain all this stuff to me? I'm not going out there until I can tell people why I'm doing this and exactly what, what. He said, Yes, sir. 
You see, submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not understanding and obeying. It's obeying whether I understand or not. If the Word says that I do it. You don't even know that's true. That's worship. I like what one guy said. You know, he says, if God's Word told me in order to worship Him in obedience, I had to stand on my head and stack wooden BBs with my teeth while I was whistling Dixie, I would do it if that's what the Word said. Whether I felt like it or not, or if it hurt my head, if that's what God's Word says, and that's where we have to come to in worship to the Lord. Another act of worship is submitting to His truth. How many of you know that every pastor has all the truth? You see, I didn't say submitting to what every pastor said. I said submitting to the truth of the Word. When you can confirm what is said, being taught, you have to be noble like the Bereans who, when they heard the Word, went home and searched the Scripture to see if they'd be so. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, it was an interesting thing today. I had a lady stop me when I was in a store or talking to me, and, and she began to tell me things from the Scripture. I said, well, that's not in the Scripture. Well, I'll have you know it is in the Scripture. I said, ma'am, I said, if it is in Scripture, I, I must have lost some books in the Bible because I've read this book from cover to cover I don't know how many times and been studying it for 40 years. That's not in the Scripture. Well, it's something like that at least. I said, no, that principle isn't even in the Scripture. She didn't like that too well. But I said, you know, if you can find that in the Scripture for me, I'll submit to that truth. But what you're saying is not in the Scripture. And that's where we have to come to. If we hear something, we search the Scripture. Now, many times, if you find something, if you hear something from this pulpit, you don't agree with it. Well, you can do one of two things. You can either say the preacher's nuts, or I'm going to go off to some other church and go where I agree with everything they say. By the way, you'll be jumping from church to church Met a lady the other night that since she's left here has been in about five churches now, four or five churches at least. Still hasn't found that perfect church. When she does, what will happen? But uh, submitting to truth. The scripture says that we're supposed to exhort and teach. That means when you hear something you don't agree with it, you need to come to those in leadership and say, I have a problem with this. You say that this is what the word says. Show me why it says that and how it says that so I can understand. You know why I say that? Because, especially in this church where we have a, a doctrinal position, we need to know why we believe what we believe. You know, for several years, there were many people that were in this church that were saying, our pastor believes. Remember that? I used to say, don't you ever say that again. If you don't know what I'm saying, why I'm saying it, and if you, you can't find it in the Scriptures, then you come and find out why I'm saying it and why it's in the Word of God. If I thought for one minute what I was saying was not in the Word of God, not consistent with God's Word, I would repent, I would crawl back and forth and beg your forgiveness. Right? That's why it took me eight years of searching, trying to find a loophole around the truth. It made me say, I can't find it. I'd like to. But whenever you hear truth, whatever it is, whether it feels good or not, you submit to it. Now, I did not say you submit to a person. I said you submit to truth. I've known of times when people have preached and I have just literally sat there and ached. I thought, oh boy, that hurts. Because it doesn't make a difference whether it hurts. If that's what the Word says, then I'm going to change my conduct because that's what I will do. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass. That's, that's worship. One more thing, and that is to encourage others. So many people have come down through the years and said, well, I just didn't get much out of that sermon. I'm going to give the pastor a C on this one, or maybe a, a B plus on that one. Well, you know, he did pretty well at the end there, you know, when he gave that good illustration at the end. You know, that's, that, if I can say this in French, it's garbage. The Word of God says that you and I are to come together as a body of believers to encourage and ex excite and uh, exhort and uh, challenge one another to a closer walk with Christ. During testimony time, I don't think sometimes we realize how important it is for us to get up even in little things and say, God has done this in my life this, this week. God has answered prayer in my life in this way this past week. Because you know there may just be someone else sitting in that congregation that that week had had a need and they need that encouragement that God does here in answer prayer. God's still on the throne. God still works in certain ways. Uh, I just had someone say to me this past week, you know, we've never forgotten and we've, it's encouraged us so many times when, when you've said that God provided for you in such and such a way. That God made a way for you financially in such and such a way because we, we just continue to be able to say, Lord, you are our source. If you've done, it, you've done it for others, you're going to do it for us. We just believe in you for that. And of course, I didn't think that that's what it would do. I was just excited to be able to share what God's done in my life. But you and I are, are responsible to encourage each other to say, don't give up. Hang in there. God's still on the throne. He's, we're going to make it. But I want you to be able to understand that when we repent, just like those did in the Old Testament and New Testament, God instantly forgave them, and then God used them. God not only forgot, forgave Job, but he said, now you other guys, you bring your offerings to Job, and I'll receive it because of him. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that God's going to hear prayers about them because of you if you're walking uprightly with him. You've repented of your sins and you pray in their behalf. Last night when I walked up front, I said, Lord, I, I, I really going to need for you to minister to me. I'm, you're going to have to just give me the word. You're going to have to show me. And the minute this couple walked up and she said, I have been under psychiatric care, the Lord just said depression and unforgiveness there, unforgiveness, and she needs to forgive. And when I said to her, there's unforgiveness in your heart, the Lord just showed me that. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now to show you what that unforgiveness is, what that resentment or bitterness is that's there. And as the Holy Spirit shows you right now, if you'll repent of it totally, you know, oh, yes, yes, he said, oh, I know what it is. Isn't he faithful? He's so good that way. We've got to, got to be submitted to him. And when we repent of our sins, we clean the slate so that the Spirit of God can operate in our lives the way he wants to. 